But before he gets freedom, it's a long take of him just there. Oh, he's contemplating. No, he's contemplating. You gotta learn yeah. how to speak. You speak the water buffalo. What are you doing, David? <laughs> Welcome to Totally Pretentious, a podcast about great movies. I'm Sean. And I'm David. And on today's show, we're going to discuss Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, a 2010 Thai film written, produced, and directed by Apichet Pong Wirasetakung. Uh, the film premiered at the 2010 Cannes Film Festival, where it received the Palme d'Or, the first Thai film to ever do so, by the, by the way, according to the internet. I don't know if that's actually true. I did not bother to check the list. And before we get started, a friendly reminder that we want to hear from you. Please share your suggestions with us about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanty.com slash suggestions. We want to put together a listener mailback episode with your thoughts, questions, topic suggestions, and more, so please get those thoughts in. Do it or else. Exactly. D- David will yell at you in French. That's right. You won't want, it. You want that to happen. Yeah. No, 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 no. That, that, is, that is direct to tears. So, David, uh, I picked this movie. You did. <laughs> I have to know, before we get to what will be an attempt to summarize what this movie is, uh, what did you think about me selecting what I consider to be a quite strange and unusual film? Uh, you mean, uh, what did I think about uh, the, the, the film or the fact that you picked it? Both, both of those questions. Both. Uh, well, I thought the film was very good. Uh, I don't know that I, I, I won't say that I had an immediate stroke or anything. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and, and uh, you're, you're picking it. I mean, I, th- uh, I, I, I thought, in fact, that uh, this was actually a really good pick on, on your part. Uh, and in, in fact, uh, inspired me for my choice at the end of the show. Oh, fantastic. Well, that that makes me happy. Uh, I will say I watched this film in in graduate school in the only grad level film class I've ever taken. And the only thing I really remember about this film before I rewatched it was the one scene that I still don't understand why it's here, which is the catfish princess scene. I was going to guess that that would be the scene. Because it, it does come sort of out of nowhere, and we will probably come back to it because I'm very curious what our thoughts would be. But I, I suppose we should get to what is Uncle Boonmi who can recall his past lives. So this film follows a family who lives in the Isan region of Thailand, which is, if you're looking at Thailand, that is the most eastish, bulbous chunk of Thailand. That's roughly that entire province. It primarily takes place at Uncle Boonmi's place, which is in a, in a rural part of Thailand. He, he, he runs a farm where he, he grows tamarind and all of these things. And he is suffering from essentially a, a terminal kidney issue. Uh, he has a Laotian uh, immigrant who is helping him uh, deal with this condition. He has his sister and his nephew and, and all of these things. And in the course of his dealing with his impending death, uh, he and their family are visited upon by his long-lost son, who has transmorphed into a monkey ghost person, and also his deceased wife, who returns as a ghost. 
really, that's kind of the basic premise. A lot of this is very slice of life and structure, right? It's about people sort of living and existing rather than necessarily there being an explicit plot per se. Although you could argue there is a thread because Uncle Boomy does, in fact, pass away by the end of the film. But that's kind of the basic idea. There's a lot of strange imagery. It is haunting, but not scary, which I think is really important because it does feature ghosts and the supernatural being presented quite without much fanfare. And while there is a moment of discomfort for the characters, that discomfort leaves very quickly. And it just sort of becomes, yeah, like my son's a monkey ghost person and that, okay. And we just moved on now and everything's fine. That's kind of the basic idea. There's other stuff in here, including the there's a a, a fable, I suppose you could say, or a myth of a princess uh, who doesn't appreciate her her countenance, as it were, uh, and wishes she was more beautiful, who is essentially semi seduced by a a catfish. Yeah, yeah, maybe more than semi. Okay, she's seduced by a catfish. That is a fair point. Uh, A catfish god, lord of the water. It's a very unusual scene. But that's kind of the only scene that really kind of pulls us away from what is the main story of Uncle Boomy and his family. Even the the still photography we get towards the end is still to do with Uncle Boomy's past, which I'm sure we'll come to. So did I miss anything important, David? Do you think I got it? No, I think, yeah. No, I think you pretty much got it there. Yeah. I will say uh, <laughs> he loves his water buffalo. Just saying. <laughs> Because that whole opening sequence is just this, mm-hmm. like, water buffalo getting freedom. <laughs> just running off into the Thai wilderness, which is kind of adorable. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I've never seen uh, footage of a water buffalo kind of going, woohoo, and uh, <laughs> t- taking off for uh, his own fun time. But, uh, yeah, that was a, a, a charming moment. So let's let's kind of get to talking about this film. So where do we start, David? Because this doesn't have any of the traditional markers of the films we've covered, where there's like very clear plot dynamics, or it doesn't have, you know, I don't know, Lisa and the Devil, which is like surreal bizarreness that has no links we can make to James Bond movies. All the actors in this are not actually actors by trade, as my understanding, because where Setukun loves to use non-actors in his productions so this isn't even an actor's movie as it were it is meditative and strange so where do you want to start well i think uh, that what, what you just said there it is very meditative i was also thinking in the uh the early stages or through the first part of the film that this was in many ways the kindest ghost story i've i'd ever seen uh, it's a very gentle film populated by gentle characters Right, you're you're also not you you're not going to get a protagonist and an antagonist in this film. And I think it is, like you said, very very meditative. It is bringing us through this process of this man confronting his death. If I were to say it's him putting his affairs in order, I'd be grossly oversimplifying the film. Yeah, but there's a but there's an element to that. If we perhaps take that expression and uh, i mean we know that he has done so monetarily and financially right or he's, he's you know the way he's leaving the farm to his sister and so forth also the spiritually psychologically emotionally the affairs are all being settled before his end yeah in a weird literal way because you know the 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 ghost elements of this or the supernatural elements are part of that process right dealing with the loss of his wife for example and with his wife dealing with the afterlife there's this line in there 
like they're talking about heaven and she just says like mm-hmm. like heaven is overrated there's nothing there is is the, yeah. the translation and talks about what it means to be a ghost that ghosts are attached to places not to places but to people and to the living and there's an implication in that brief conversation that upon Bunmi's death she will not have anything she's connected to and so what happens afterwards it doesn't tell us explicitly no. i took the implication to be that some kind of ceasing to be occurs but what that means to a ghost i we don't know does that mean she just blips out of existence or they go to some other afterlife it never tells us because i think that's not what the film's not interested in giving those answer, answers it's more interested about the questions and the, the yeah. I don't know, the, the personal stakes that people have in these things. Yeah, and that scene is, is very poignant and ends on that question, right? At least the, the revelations, the explanations end on the explicit question when he asks, well, after I die, how will I find you? Yes. And he doesn't get that answer. It's not just, I guess, when you say it's, it's interested in asking questions, and I agree completely, but it also goes out of its way to provoke questions you know we could we can look at a film you know to 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 take a polar opposite for example <laughs> like dirty harry which <laughs> is asking questions and not providing answers but but we we understand completely what the questions are yeah whereas here we have moments like that with that question that is unanswered but we have scenes like the the catfish scene like the ending to take uh, just two which deliberately provoke questions on the part of the audience, or at least certainly that's that's that was my impression as a as a Western viewer. And of course, I, I need to have a very large caveat on everything that I'm saying. That I, I a sense that there's a lot of stuff that I'm likely missing. That I just there's this context that I simply do not have, and that perhaps I would be much less mystified about certain things if I had that context. I, it's interesting you say that because the director did an interview at one point where I think for The Guardian where he was asked almost directly about the catfish scene in particular, which I think we'll come back to, in which his answer was just like, you, you don't need to understand everything. Yeah. It, to a degree, this film is the production of the film is sort of where Seda Kung's sort of homage to classic cinema. Right. Because it's done in 16 millimeter, which is a deliberate choice. He he chose that because that's what he remembers from old Thai Thai television, which was on 16 millimeter. It has all these classic styles, and he's even said in interviews that it's like his lamentation about the death of of literal film, like actual physical film, because everything's moving to digital. But there's also this oddity to this, in which I think while you can some of the context of of Thailand, which I I've, I know a little bit that's relevant to the film will help with some aspects of it. Other aspects, I don't think it's intended to be understandable in that kind of clear set. Like the catfish scene in particular is like a fable that's in this, the like heart and center of this movie, but which has no obvious direct connection to anything else in the film, which can't be said of the still images we get, which do. Right. So, okay. So I guess the, the two things that, that struck me, one with regards to the catfish scene and, and there I, I would, that, that certainly that and the ending struck me as being certainly scenes that were deliberately leaving me with questions, right? The ones, ones that defied attempts to come up with an answer to. Uh, so to, to take a, a, uh, a very loose analogy to 
Western uh, cinema example, something like 2001, A Space Odyssey, which d- does something <laughs> n- not, not un- you know, again, deliberately leaving you with questions, right? With a, Many. Uh, with, yeah. <laughs> so so that that kind of thing. And yeah, though you're right, the there's no direct connection to the, 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 the princess's fable b- between it and the rest of the film. On the other hand, we certainly have visual continuity in its setting in the the forest right which at first i thought those were still our characters right that they had just left the farmhouse and were you know walking through the trees and it took me a moment to realize oh this is a completely different group of people so there was there was visual continuity established there and it taking place at night and, and so forth but then the idea of the journey that's there of the encounter with the supernatural that's there and the mating of the human with the supernatural which is also paralleled with the story of uncle boonmi's son and how he becomes a monkey ghost right so there are connections or you know they're they're in parallel they're metaphorical they're thematic but they're not plot driven if that makes sense yeah they're i mean they're not in and of itself the princess story has a plot and resolution by itself because the premise of that is she's a princess and she has disfigurement on her face and she doesn't feel beautiful but she sees a reflection of herself of what she looks like and one of her servants is like kind of macking on her and she thinks that he's only interested in the reflection he sees of what he imagines not her actual face and she doesn't feel beautiful and so this catfish says oh like calm your role lady like you're actually really beautiful and she offers offerings to this catfish being god entity whatever it is and then has a very intimate i would argue sexual encounter with the catfish which also includes some images of what look like baby catfish being born so we could talk about the metaphors there but there is like a plot and resolution there in bits and bobbles there are these moments of plots but as a whole entity, the film is not interested in at least not a Westerner's conception of what we would say would be a plot. And and what I meant was n- not that the Princess story didn't have a plot to it, didn't have a story, but rather it did not flow out of the story of Uncle Boonmi. Correct. Yeah. Directly. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's it's connected in in other ways, and I think that along the lines of what you just said too, that yeah, there is a story, but it's it unfolds more almost as a series of tableau. Yeah. Now, uh, I saw the the discussion of he's doing six different kinds of, of film styles, but I think what, what particularly, at least what dominated for me, for most of the film, was the the stillness of the camera, that the, we would get entire scenes with the camera immobile, the very, very long takes, and mostly shot in long shot or medium long shot. Right. And it's the kind of thing, I mean, that you, you, you'll certainly encounter films with immobile cameras, long takes, entire scenes, long shot, medium, long shot, you know, coming out of, you know, like the, the, the more sleep inducing B movies of the 1950s and 60s, right? <laughs> Some of the, 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 the cheapest stuff. But the, like you look at any movie by Larry Buchanan, for example. But the thing is that that's not at all what the case here is the difference between a hack and a filmmaker that these long, slow takes are hypnotic. They're, they're beautiful to look at and they are perfectly in keeping with the very low key, quiet 
meditative conversations, meditative in tone and content. And so then that's being mirrored by the, by the film. There were moments where I was reminded a little bit of, or I was thinking a little bit of the work of Belatar, which also has these very, very, very long takes, though in, this, in, in his case, some of them can go on for 10, 15 minutes or, or more. And that's, that's not what we're getting here either, but it's, I, I see a, a parallel in the sense of the kind of shot that in another context would put the audience to sleep but doesn't here. That is a perfect marriage of the form and the content. I think that's interesting because I think in another context, this film would be viewed or in another filmmaker's hand, I should say, not another context. This film would come across as quite dull because there there isn't a lot of there's not a lot of what we would say is quote unquote action in the sense of its structure. Right. Even when surprising events occur, it is incredibly slow is not right the right word. But it, it isn't a thing where a like, you know, a, his son returns and like jumps into the room and it's like a big event. He sort of appears slowly emerging as a like a pair of eyes and moving up the stairs through the darkness. There, There's a lot of this very calm, like where people are considering what is happening right now. We're really just kind of like inhabiting the space as this event's happening in a very slow, deliberate way. It's a really good example of a, a a story that is not a story that has conflict in it. Right? It, it's not based on that structure of the, of the the conflict driven story. You know, especially you know, intro, rising action, climax, conclusion. None of that. Yeah, because this is a film that, while there is an issue that is resolved, it isn't necessarily that the film's about resolving the issue. It is just a thing, like, it's death. Death is the thing that occurs here. But it is a thing that is presented to us as, this is just a thing that happens. Not a thing that is necessarily happening to somebody, like some entity is bringing it upon him. It is a thing that just simply is. Or a thing to be overcome. And to some degree, I think uh, there's a little bit of the character kind of coming to terms with his death, but it is still presented to us as being Uncle Boomy kind of comes across as he knows what's coming. He's He is dealing with it. The family is dealing with it. But it's not a thing where we're over-dramatizing it to the point where it's it's sort of like we must meditate on what death means and we must like no. have the philosophical conversation and we got to have all of the feels. It's very much about... This is a thing that's happening, and, and this is a thing that's a part of these people's lives. They're just dealing with it as they would deal with it, and that is, that's just like, it kind of feels more real in a way, I guess is what I'm getting at. It's an exploration for, for Boonmi, and one filled with wonder, and it takes unexpected turns for him. He's not expecting to see the ghost of his wife or the the transformation of his son, right? He that They are a surprise when they arrive. They are a nice surprise, right? So. When he came here, presumably to wind things up and wind things down, he didn't know it was going to go in this way. And so it then becomes his almost delighted, but always in this very, very low-key, gentle... I mean, he's one of the most gentle characters I have ever seen on screen. Ironically, we will have to go back to. (laughs) He, yeah, uh, but he's sort of saying, okay, so this is what my death is going to be. I didn't know it was going to be like this. And he advances through it step by step with you know, whatever the new thing is that's 
that's being brought to him. I think it's interesting you say that like they're they're startled, but then they just get over it. It's almost as if if maybe the son had just sent a letter, like they they wouldn't have been alarmed by his arrival at all. <laughs> well, in fact, they're less alarmed by. I mean, the arrival of the son generates virtually no alarm, right? He's the sister calls him to come to the table, and they're sort of looking at him, and oh, okay, well, you know. Your hair, you've let your hair grow out, right? I think yeah, is actually yeah. one of the comments. We, they, he, they ask, why do you look like that? I can think of two moments where someone looks alarmed when the wife materializes, right? And it's one of those moments I had to rewind because I just, you know, it was genuinely startling because I didn't at first see her slowly appear and suddenly she was there. <laughs> uh, and I had to go back and it's, you know, it was a very, very simple special effect. But but quite beautifully done because it's happening in a you know it's another one of those long still takes your attention is focused to the right of the frame listening to the conversation there as she starts appearing on the left and then so you you kind of react like the son uh, or, or like like the sister's son to his his appearance and then at the end when it, again the alarm briefly from the son. When uh, he and his mother get up to uh, go get something to eat, and he sees themselves still sitting on the bed watching TV, and there's this moment of what the hell? Again, it it passes uh, almost almost immediately. I love that way in which it just passes over is really interesting to me. I think because it's the film sort of like taking the bite out of the supernatural altogether. That they're not actually supernatural; they're just natural (laughs) like the the alarm is always about not expecting i i would think like if we think about like a traditional ghost story of how so many of us are familiar with ghost stories like the ghost showing up is unexpected but also it's super unwelcome (laughs) like we don't want to be visited by a ghost but here the story is like oh i wasn't expecting my dead wife to show up as a ghost but she's here now let's talk about some pictures or i wasn't expecting to see myself and my mother and I guess my sister sitting on the bed while I am walking out with like you wouldn't expect that but that's what happens and they just kind of go all right whatever and they move on which is such a refreshing look at the supernatural as not actually a thing of alarm or really requires much interrogation like even when the sun shows up it's not so much that they they're trying to attack his appearance they just genuinely want to know like you look different than the last time we it's almost like they're talking about like oh you you like you like lost some weight like that's kind of what they're talking about what have you been up to lately is uh what the (laughs) the question comes down to yeah and and the answer is actually quite (laughs) alarming but they're just like, oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. Because the answer is, like, he, he met these monkey ghost people, and then he, like, got a monkey ghost wife and, and mated with her. And then he became a monkey ghost himself. And that's it. Like, he he's not shocked by it. And not, there's no problem. It's just like, yeah, it's just a thing that happens. And I love that because you just don't see it often enough uh, in a lot of our cinema even in films where the supernatural is assumed to exist, it's still like, oh my god, like, this is not supposed to be here. Whereas this is just like, yeah, it's fine. Well, I mean, it, it, depend, it's, it depends entirely on the intent of the film, right? Of course, in a horror film, that's going to be the, the reaction, because if you don't get that, it's not a horror film. But if you look at a film like Truly Madly Deeply, that has a very 
ultimately very matter-of-fact approach to ghosts. It's first reassuring a, a, a way of coping with grief, and then eventually the ghosts are starting to become annoying because they're leaving the toothpaste uncapped and uh, <laughs> and they're just taking up too much space in the apartment. And, and you know, it's all very, very matter-of-fact and very, very moving. So, yeah, th- but that, that film is a... I don't want to say romantic comedy exactly. It certainly has its comic elements. Uh, it's a, a romantic drama, anyway. Uh, definitely a, a, a three-hanky film, and uh, one of your chances to see Alan Rickman play a genuinely nice character. Oh, good. He's the go- he's the primary ghost. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting you say like intent matters here because clearly there's a lot of intentions. We've already talked about like you know an homage to classic cinema. There's all of those kinds of things here. There is clearly an intent of not telling the traditional linear story that we expect in a lot of Western cinema. But then one of the other things I think is interesting of what you said was the intent in terms of horror. Because while this film is, it is not in, by any stretch of the imagination a horror film. Uh, because that that is not its interest. Its interest is not terror in any way, shape, or form. But it does have buried underneath it horrific elements. Because one of the things that this film talks about very briefly but does not necessarily spend time really unpacking is the history in thailand of uh, communist insurrections and insurgencies because this region of of isan is the one of the regions where the first major altercation between thai security and the sort of like communist insurgency essentially began in this same region in a place called i think it's nabwa and there are references at two separate points to this from Uncle Boonie's past. One is with his sister when he's talking about, they're talking about whether or not he basically is a good person, you know, and he says like, am I really? And she says, well, you killed people, but you killed, you, you were killing communists, but the intent matters because you were killing them for the nation is, is essentially what she says. And then later we get those still images which show soldiers parading around a man in a, essentially a gorilla suit you know, at one point with a, a, essentially like a, a noose around his neck dragging him around, which seems to be yet another reference to the way that that region has historically been treated because of its communist leanings historically, because that's where a lot of the Asan region had a very large insurgency of communists, but many of the local community were interested in, in being part of that, and they thus suffered as a consequence during a lot of the anti-communist actions there. And uh, Wirasetokun has talked about this a little bit in some of his his interviews about how people in that region have historically been treated by the Thai government because of their links back to communism. And I think it's really interesting that that's there because while we're not shown any explicit or violent imagery per se, with exception perhaps to those still images being in a sort of more metaphorical sense of violence, the implication is that Bunmi has in the past done horrific things in the service of his country and in his dying days is sort of thinking back and wondering, does that make me a bad person, right? Karma, is this my karma? Is that what all this is coming back to bite me in the ass? His sister offers sort of, uh, Jen kind of offers, a, I guess, a solution to that. But it's unclear if Boonmi fully accepts it. Because again, this is the film doesn't, it, it it raises it. And then it leaves us with the question of what do we think Uncle Boonmi has come to the conclusion of here? And I don't think, me personally, I don't think he actually 
necessarily agrees with her or has come to a conclusion about the state of his karma. And that scene with the still image is now, I saw that without any of the background knowledge that you just explained. Right. Oh, wow. So, so I hit that cold. And quite obviously, that was one of the scenes that left me rather baffled. And because, I mean, there's, there's the images that you described, but we also see people in civilian clothes shot in the act of conflict, look like they're, they're, they're throwing stones. And we keep seeing that figure in the, the gorilla suit, which, of course, cannot help but evoke the monkey ghost uh, elsewhere in the film. And the last image, if, uh, if I'm not mistaken, of those still images is of those, uh, I think it's mainly the people in civilian clothes, but, but you know, the, the people we've been seeing standing with the guy in the gorilla suit behind them, still wearing that, that noose, but with his arms around them uh, as they pose for a picture. And, and this is happening while Uncle Boonmi is narrating a vision of the future. And what he's describing sounds like a symbolic or metaphorical account of government oppression, but in a future fantastical context, which is then linked with these still images that don't certainly don't feel of the future at all, but of the past. And with that contagion of imagery, like we had between the Princess Myth and the rest of the film. And so it, it's this another moment that's discreet, yet linked, but in ways that left me with questions and no answers. Yeah, I mean, I think like some of the lines he's talking about while those images are playing has to do with like his notion of what past and future selves means. Like the title of this movie, Uncle Boone, who can recall his past lives. Very little of this movie is what normal people would typically say when we mean past lives. What we mean is like reincarnation. But this film isn't really about reincarnation. It's about various versions of himself throughout his life that are different selves and as you there's at one point i think he says i can't remember who, who he says it to but he basically says something to the effect of you know those things in the past as you kind of move forward like they they just get left behind right you move past those things and that it that set of images you're right like it, it harkens back to a past not to a theoretical future but he's talking about what the future could look like as we're being given these images of the past so it's sort of like Boonmi offering a version of himself that won't exist because he's not going to see the future. He's going he's going to leave behind this one, but is giving us all of these versions of himself throughout his story. And one of the versions of himself is potentially one of the soldiers or one of the civilians where potentially, I suppose, are supposed to see this gorilla suit as a sort of dehumanized communist, maybe, or something but it's again the film does not answer that for us it it makes us think about it well what you've just said about his, the way past lives is you meant here certainly uh, made a light bulb go on for me regarding the ending and linking that to the director's love of cinema and specifically you know, film so if our past lives are yes not regarding reincarnation, but our lives of our past, how we change, how we are constantly in a process of changing and becoming, and who we are now is not who we were even just moments ago, right? And then think about what is the nature of cinema, right? A succession of still images, 24 frames per second, 
where the, the, the past is constantly being left behind, but there's that persistence of vision that per- allows us to see it, to, to see movement. So cinema is this perpetual change predicated on a visual memory of the past uh, as, as it succeeds moment by moment, 24th of a second by 24th of a second. So when at the end of the film, Boonmi's son and sister get up and leave themselves behind, that they're right, we're getting another cleavage from the past, right? But using cinema to give us the visual representation of even the most minor deviation, for, uh, or, or rather departure. The past is now them sitting on the, te- uh, on the bed watching television as we, we get the, the other selves that go into the future, or rather that, that are in the present that we uh, follow as we leave them, just as the son has left another version of himself behind, perhaps two, becoming a monk. But now that you know, at the end, is he entirely comfortable with being one? Is he leaving that behind again? So we are getting a succession of selves, a succession of transformations, mirroring the very nature of cinema itself. Yeah, everything you're saying, 100%. I mean, this is his lamentation, as he has said, about the death of cinema, of, of, of literal physical film. Which also explains to me, I mean, when, I, when I saw that, that explained to me why, I mean, Memoria, which I would, his most recent film, which I would really like to see, and remains inaccessible to us because he has insisted on it only having theatrical release. So that's why we're not seeing it on any streaming service. Like it'll never be available. Well, I, I imagine eventually, perhaps, but, oh, okay. but that's why it's. But it's been out for quite a while. You you can't get it in any form except uh, right now, except if, uh, if it happens to show up in the theaters. So I'm wondering if that's connected to. Uh, I mean, here I'm I'm speculating, but given his what he uh, saying about his lamentation of the the loss of cinema, the loss of of film, if that is one of the reasons why he's insisting on it being theatrical only. And and you know, many people have pointed out how much has been lost visually in the move to digital. How ugly films have become uh, in the, the the move away from celluloid. When you're making me think there too of like the the history of a film, like the amount of silent films that are just gone. Mm-hmm. You know that we know they were made, but the the film is lost somewhere to the ether. So like, there's this long history of film has had a hard time for various reasons, of being able to maintain itself over time. And the shift to digital is one other example because of what you're talking about here. Yeah, on the other hand, we are uh, films are being, in some, in some respects, being preserved as they never have been before, right? But uh, it is, unlike print, so much more dependent on technology, which constantly changes, right? And, and I mean, we're getting sidetracked here, but... I mean, I'm certainly an, an advocate of physical media, though, and also you know, gradually adjusted to the fact that, well, there's a lot of stuff that I'm going to be getting that's going to be digital, and that's going to be the way that I'm going to, to own it. But also realizing that even, you know, okay, there's a movie that's really important to me. I want to have the physical film, uh, the, the, the disc, but even that's not forever. Even uh, setting aside the questions of how long it lasts, I mean, I had a VHS collection. It has now disappeared because that physical medium became unplayable. The machines broke down. I could no longer get a machine that would allow me to play this medium. So that that disappears. I mean, I think the, the, a lot of the discussion about the move to digital is talking about not the, the, the preservation of film, but just what that does to the image itself, 
right? When we're also dealing with the you know the the long term effects of of three D, which has led to image uh, films being shown with bad bulbs and the 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 de- degeneration of the cinematic experience in theaters, and then with the pandemic, with the lo- what the long term effect is going to be. I mean, we will always have movies, but will we always have theaters? And the way of watching a film where you are not being distracted by everything else in your life, right? I mean, that's one of the things about the movie theater, at least theoretically, right? You're not going to be checking. You're not going to be checking your phone. You're not going to be. Uh, you know, the do- you don't have to let the dog out. You're sitting in a dark room with your senses dominated by this huge image. Yeah, you immerse yourself, or at least theoretically, you're supposed to immerse yourself in the experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is like a huge... Uh, yeah, we don't that's really a whole other issue. Time. Yeah. But, but I, I think it's part of... While the film itself isn't like explicitly bringing a lot of this up, it's clear in the director's interest that this film was shot the way it was precisely because of what's happening to... Even in 2010, right? He could see the shift coming. So... To some degree, this film is, if if you want to say Uncle Boonmi, is in fact the the literal film with celluloid, you know, and it, and its death and a meditation upon its death of its many pasts. Obviously, there's other stuff kind of going on. I love this film, and while it makes us think of a lot of all of these things, it is really remarkable. I think for all of the things that we've discussed, like you will note, we had almost nothing negative. Just I don't think we said a negative thing about this movie at any point. And it is definitely, it's a film that has a deep, deep love of its medium and of the, the image, right? From the opening second with that water buffalo. And, and really that, that sets the tone, right? Because it's a long take of a buffalo doing nothing. Well, he's not doing nothing. He gained freedom. But before <laughs> he gets freedom, it's a long take of him just there. Oh, he's contemplating. No, he's contemplating. You got to learn yeah. how to speak. You speak the water buffalo. What are you doing, David? But but this this but this is my point, right? It we have like the 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 image is very still. It's a contemplative. Yet we are invited to just be there in this space, looking at that space, at the the figure within, and it it gets us into that contemplative. Uh, mode where we are going to be gazing for long times at all corners of this beautiful frame. I I agree 100%. Yeah, I I think that that is a lot of what's going on here. And I think that this is worth watching. I would get it on Blu-ray so you can watch it on a large screen because I would not recommend watching it on a small screen like a laptop, which is how I was watching it. Because I think this film deserves to some degree to have as much of its ability to suck you into it as possible. And the more you can distract yourself from anything else around you, I think the better. Which may go back to what you were saying before, that perhaps to some degree, that is what this director, Wurseta Kung, is going for. That he is trying to create an experience in which you just let yourself be taken in. Whether or not it has a plot or a clear story, you are in this moment. In this case, with a bunch of people uh, living their lives in the Isan region of Thailand. So we need to close out. All right. (laughs) Because I think we can talk more, but we can't talk forever. As always, let us know if you have any thoughts. If you've watched this film, etc. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Go over to skifmefanny.com slash listener suggestions. As we always do, though... One of us gets to pick the movie. This was my movie, so that's why I went first. And David now gets to tell us what's the next movie we're going to watch. 
The next movie we will not be describing as contemplative or meditative. <laughs> there, there are many ways in which it can be described, but those are not the words that we'll be able to use. So oh boy. We're off to India next time, which we haven't been to yet. Uh, we are going to see Ega, E-E-G-A. Uh, oh. You can find it on Prime. It is a wild ride and so much fun. All right. So dancing? Oh, yeah. you got dancing. You've got super heroics. You've got reincarnation. Oh, David. You have, most of all, a fly. Nice. Okay, that sounds fantastic. All right, folks, so we're going to watch Ega next time. Yeah, this is going to be great. So if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Skiffing Fanning on Twitter and Instagram and get the newsletter at skiffingfanty.com slash newsletter. And if you like what we do, please go to patreon.com slash skiffingfanty and give us like a dollar. And then obviously five-star reviews on iTunes and those other lovely places. As for me, you can find me at Sean Duke on Twitter, seanduke.net, alphabet streams on Twitch, and patreon.com slash thejoyfactory. I'm also on Mastodon at Sean Duke on the thewandering.shop if you want to find me there. And you can find me on Twitter at David underscore Annandale or davidannandale.com. And read his books. Yes, please do that. Buy them, too. Yeah, buy buy them, read them, then buy them again and read them again. Yeah, because you're only allowed to read one uh, an individual copy once. Yeah, if you want to reread, you have to buy a second one. Yeah, yeah, and you just keep doing that. It's like, it's, it's David's books all the way down, like turtles. Exactly. All right, folks, uh, we'll see everybody next time. Thanks again, David. This is a lot of fun. It has been. All right. Uh, I don't know, like this, like, this is awkward now. I'm going to turn into a monkey ghost, so awkward ending and scene. <laughs> Bye. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>